Welcome to King Solomon and the Stoics. I'm Shmuley Halpern. Thank you for joining. In this episode, we're going to discuss the lifestyle that King Solomon led and what lessons we are to learn. Why did he have so many wives? Why did he build so many palaces? Why did he plant so many vineyards and so many orchards? Why? In addition, we're going to see the fascinating backstory related in Tractate Gittin by the Talmudic sages on 68a and b of Solomon's encounter with Ashmedai, the king of the demons, and how Solomon subsequently lost the throne. And we'll see the lessons there as well in that cryptic and esoteric story. So let's jump in. Just to get a sense of what we're talking about, we'll glance at the opening words of chapter 2, where Solomon talks of experimenting with joy and pleasure that turn out to be futile. He says, of laughter, it is mad, and of joy, what does it accomplish? I venture to stimulate my body with wine, he says, while my heart is involved with wisdom. And that's important. His heart is involved with wisdom, but he's involved in this physical world. He seems to be extremely involved in the pleasures of this life. Why? So let's take a step back. King David fought. King David, Solomon's father, was a warrior. He was out to vanquish evil. He sat on the throne of God on the, on the, in the kingdom of God, and he sought to push down to suppress the idol worshippers. He sought to suppress the enemies of ancient Israel and so on and so forth. Solomon, on the other hand, his name means Shlomo, his name means peace. He comes after David to a time of peace, to a time of prosperity. He unifies the nations around Israel. They pay tribute to him. They recognize his kingship as of being an exalted king. They seek his wisdom and things are unified. Solomon pulls it all together. He goes into the world and he manages to bring it together. And in that sense, he does that for us. He manages to bring the physical world to a place of unity with God that we could benefit from. In a certain sense, we can say this is similar to what Joseph did in Egypt. The sages tell us that when Joseph encountered the wife of Potiphar and she tempted to seduce him and Joseph was strong and withstood that terrible test, he created a reality in Egypt for the subsequent Jewish nation that would come down that they would be able to withstand moral challenges. They would be able to withstand such temptations. And that's the power of a moral choice. It creates consequences. And Solomon's involvement in this world and bringing it together to a place of unity, by unifying it around the banner of God, he manages to create a reality where we too can be involved in this world. Solomon succeeded to such an extent that the fruit of his labor, his crowning achievement, if you will, is the Song of Songs, which is a love song between man and God. Solomon had such a state of purity despite his involvement in this world. He was in a state of yearning to connect with his source. That was the ultimate expression of Solomon, the Song of Songs. So he succeeded to an incredible degree. What was his work like? What does it look like to be involved in this world and to do it right? And this is an important question because we are very much involved in this world. We need to be. How can we do it properly? So a couple of things. First of all, Solomon always sought to see the positive. He says here in one of the first verses in chapter 2, in the first verse actually, I sought to see the good. 
The word tov, which typically translates as good, means complete. It means things that work, things that reach their goal. Solomon always sought to see how things come to completion. He sought to focus on the good in life and to focus less on the evil and the suffering in life. You know, we think of our minds often as a storehouse of information, but that's not the case. What you put into your brain, what you seek, what you focus on, what you delve into is going to define your perspectives on life. Be careful. Focus on the good. You can only see with good, says Moshe David Valley, the great Kabbalist. You can only see with good. When you see disjointed pieces, you actually are not seeing anything. Sight. Light is something that provides clarity, allows you to see. And so we need to maintain a clarity of perspective. And the way to do that is to focus on the good. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, Salman tells us all of the benefit, all that I gained from all my toil was that which I toiled on, that which I worked on, that which I sweated through. The sages say that a person who benefits from the work of his hand is greater than one who fears God. Maral explains that someone who benefits from the work of his hand, someone who benefits from their own sweat and blood and tears, their work, the result of that work, the enjoyment of that self-actualization is theirs. It belongs to them. It's an expression of self. It comes together and it is unified with self. It's true self-actualization. And that is joy. Ramosha David Valley says such sharp words that if a person fails to enjoy their endeavors, they fail to enjoy their efforts, they have nothing. They have failed to connect their life with self. It's as if they're living someone else's life. If they're not connecting their toil to their self through the faculty, to the, through the emotion of joy, they have nothing. And that's the other point that Solomon teaches us. Enjoy what you're engaged with. Enjoy the self-actualization it brings you. And this is such a difficult test in our age of consumerism because how many things do we actually enjoy that we've created? And so it's a struggle. Let us remember and focus on the things that we create. Let us create more. Let us create more unity, more harmony, more joy, even if you're not engaged in acts of creative labor. But there's so many things that we do create, that we can create. They take effort, but enjoy that effort. Make sure you bring your effort back to yourself. Make sure that you enjoy self. Don't just enjoy some product that someone convinced you that you were lacking and now you're feeling a lack. That is all in the area of lack. There's no true joy when you're dealing with just a gaping hole. So enjoy your efforts. Enjoy your toil. That is lesson number two. Let's take this further. So Solomon goes ahead and he engages in the world. And he manages to unify. He manages to bring out the good in everything. How does he do that? He does that because as it says... I went ahead, he says, and my, heart, my body was stimulated by wine, but my heart is involved with wisdom. That means that Solomon's head, his heart, remains in the realm of wisdom all the while that he's engaged in this physical world. And that way he's able to, see, to sift out, to seed out and see what is good, what is the focus, what is primary, what should be secondary. 
And that is the power of the human intellect. That's the power of the development of the human being. The human being is all potential. And that potential is developed when we engage with the world, which has its elements that we should take and its elements that we should cast away. And when, when we engage in that world and we choose and we discern and we define and so on and so forth, we are growing. We are actualizing ourselves, And that way, we can come to a deeper appreciation for what is good. We can come, for, to, we can come to a deeper appreciation of light, of clarity, only because we've experienced darkness, only because we've experienced suffering, can we appreciate good. And so that's what happens when Solomon is involved in this world. He looks for the good. He looks to make what is primary, primary, what is secondary, secondary. But Solomon goes wrong in three key areas. One, he goes beyond what he's supposed to. The Torah tells us that a king who's able to unify everything, there's a limit. And therefore, a king can't have too many wives, he can't have too much money, and he can't have too many horses, he can't have too much power. A king unifies everything, but there's a limit. The king may represent God, but he's not God. Solomon sought to unify too much. He sought to bring too many disparate elements into his orbit and unify them. And so in that sense, on, a, on his level, obviously we don't understand the greatness of Solomon and we cannot understand his sins and his failures. But we do have the teachings we have and we can learn from them. But let us always remember who we're talking about. We're talking about someone of unfathomable greatness. He sought to bring in too many disparate kingdoms into his alliance. And that didn't work either. That was the other mistake. And the third mistake we can find in his encounter with Ashmedai, the king of the demons. And this is a fascinating thing. Let's jump in a little bit to that story without getting into all the details. We can find it in Tract Gitin on 68a, where the Talmud relates that Solomon needed a certain thing seemingly beyond the physical world, a certain worm, that when the worm would crawl, it would crack stone. And since Solomon needed the stones for the temple, and in order to cut those stones, he was not allowed to use metal, because metal has the a, a capacity to end the life of a person. We make weapons out of metals, and therefore he couldn't use metals in the construction of the temple. So he needed this worm, this seemingly otherworldly worm, to go ahead and slice the stones. And again, we can't at the moment understand all the details, the cryptic, esoteric meaning of all these details. What does this worm represent, and so on and so forth. But let's try to get a general understanding of the story. So Solomon seeks out this worm and he's told that he can only access this worm through the king of demons, Ashmedai. There's actually a fascinating reference in this chapter here, in chapter 2, in the end of verse 9, if you have a look, according to one opinion in the Talmud, it talks about Solomon having control over the demons. And it's a reference to this story. Solomon has control over the demons he brings about. He brings King Ashmedai, king of the demons, in chains to Jerusalem. And Ashmedai is able to tell him how to access this worm, and that goes well. What doesn't go so well is that Ashmedai is there, and King Solomon is, is conversing with him, is engaging with him. And, and King Solomon says to Ashmedai, you know, look, you're here in chains. What's so great about the demons? What's so, what, where's the great power of the demons? And Ashmedai says, you will only understand my power... If you give me your signet ring, which has, four, or your, which has the, sig, the, the signature sorry, of the king 
and you give me the chains. You un you untie my chains, which have God's name on them. And the Maral explains that these are all metaphysical, metaphorical references. What's going on here is that Ashmedai is telling Solomon, you only have power over me because you're the human being you created, you were created to be. You've developed your intellect to such an extent with your connection to God, represented by this, these chains that have God's name on it. You've bound yourself to God and your signet ring represents your form, your intellect, what it means to be human. That's why you have power over me. And in that context, you will not understand my power because my power is within another realm. But the moment you step away from being the great human being you are, the moment you step away from being the great righteous man, the person of such deep spiritual connection to God, the moment you step away from that, then you can tap into the evil power of the demons. And so Solomon, in his attempt to understand everything and to put everything in its in its proper place and perspective he seeks to understand even the power of the demons and so he relinquishes his greatness he relinquishes so to speak on some level his connection to god and his great intellect his great development as a human being he relinquishes that to understand the great evil power of the demons and in the process he falls and the morale explains he doesn't lose the throne literally but at least temporarily, or according to some opinions, for the rest of his life. He no longer sits on the throne of God. He no longer expresses God's kingdom on this earth. Because he's lost, he's lost that greatness of connection to God, and he's lost that greatness of what it means to be a human being. And we learn an incredible lesson from here. We have the areas and the faculties that we have. We have the ability to understand that which we can't understand. And we have certain deficiencies. There are certain areas of knowledge where we as human beings cannot understand them well. And those are beyond us. And in our own lives, there are certain areas that are in front of us. There are certain areas that are our expertise. There are certain areas that are our domain. And there are certain things that are beyond us. And the moment we step past our own bounds, we fail. When we stay within our domain, when we use our power that's God-given, then we can succeed to incredible degrees. And this lesson we learned from Solomon. He sought unity and he created so much unity in a, in a world of such variety of so many disparate elements. But you can't bring everything together. Certain things are left out until the coming of Mashiach. And Solomon's era as great as it was, was not yet the time to unify every single aspect of reality. And so he went too far. <clears throat> and that's a great lesson that we can learn. So let's return to Solomon's engagement in the world and let's try to understand that a little bit better. And let's see what we can wrap up and walk away with. Man is potential and man is meant to actualize and go through life and see good and see suffering and see evil and experience good and experience its opposite and thereby come to know good, to really know it, not because we found it on a Google search, but to truly know it through experience. That's the benefit of life. And that's why the Talmud relates in Sukkah, the elders in the temple at the great celebration on the holiday of Sukkot, they would dance and they would say, praise these are old age, that 
went ahead and atoned for our youth. There's youth and there's old age, and each has a place. And it's the clarity of old age where a person's able to look back, and they're able to see the folly of youth. That is the very purpose of youth, is to be able to look back at it and be able to see what is important, what was important, what was unimportant. That way we can truly, truly understand good, and we can really actualize self. That is life experience. That's the benefit. That's what Solomon did when he engaged with this world. And we should attempt to follow his footsteps and also to cap our endeavor, to cap our engagement, so as not to fall into the same trap that he fell into. Every single moment in life has what to teach you, whether it's youthful vigor or old age when a person is weaker. Every moment has a lesson. The Sepharno explains, the great Sepharno, that when Solomon says here in the coming verses, who could come after the king? Who could question what God did? Who could say that we humans with our life experience can understand more than what God created? Meaning, if God created a reality, created a circumstance, there's something right in front of me at the moment. There's a scenario, there's an encounter, there's a challenge, whatever it is. Who am I to delve, to probe, to seek to understand it better? It is what it is. God created it. Who am I to think that my human intellect can actualize to a greater degree than the way it was created by God? Who can say that their understanding of a situation is going to be deeper than the bare facts on the ground? And the answer is that no. The human being has a soul, has free will, has the human intellect. God created the human intellect to be able to introduce a deeper element to the physical world he created. And so, we need to on one hand accept what reality brings our way. We need to accept it. Ramosha David Valley explains that Solomon's involvement in this world, in the physical side of this world, is because this world is also physical. Sure, there's room for spirituality, but there is also a material and physical existence. And whatever life hands you, you need to take it. You need to accept what situation is coming your way. However, you always need to challenge the meaning of that situation. You always need to grow your understanding of self, your understanding of good, your understanding of God through the experiences that you go through. And you need to grow from it. So never challenge the situation itself. When life hands us something, take it, accept it. Don't wish it were different, but change the meaning. See where it can lead you. Choose to make yourself a great person as a result of your life experiences. So yes, Salman teaches us engage with this world, but do it to bring yourself to a greater level. Actualize yourself to the greatest degree possible. Bring yourself as close to God as possible. You'll be able to unify more and more elements of this world until finally we'll come to that day where the entire universe is unified around the banner of God and we have absolute peace and absolute unity. May that day come speedily in our times. Thank you for listening.